So first of all, you know, I've done these a few times and I've actually got a few awards in WSWA and, and after like the second time, I kind of figured out that people don't know who the hell I am. So especially out here in California. So, you know, I like to say that Latitude Beverage is one of the fastest growing 500,000 case wine brand companies that really nobody here knows about. And, uh, and it's really because we do business in 14 states, mostly in the Northeast, Chicago and Colorado. Uh, we've launched maybe a state a year, um, and uh, we'll do about you know 470,000 cases just for uh, uh, you know, 480,000 cases of Latitude Beverage, 90 plus dollars last year. Uh, but you know we're 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 an innovative wine company. We're we're we're, um, um, we're we're come out with about a new brand every year right now. We you know we're, we work hard to try to vi provide great values for our customers. That's really what we're all about. Try to find market niches and get work relentlessly to get the best value for our customers as possible. And we're competitive, you know, we, you know, it's hard, you know, we're, we're a small company with limited resources going against multinational companies every single day. And it's very, very competitive out there. So we're competitive people. So we're, we're a scrappy little company based out in Boston that, you know, tries to fight every day against the big guys. And, and what I'll show you in some instances, in some markets, we're winning. So, you know, in 2000, and, uh, so as, as Lauren was mentioned, started the company in 2007. First of all, you know, I was a, a bright-eyed entrepreneur, left a pretty good company, making a good salary, having actual health care. I thought, you know, my wife was making good money. She could support me for a little while and, uh, and, and had no kids. And, you know, 2007, we were all doing pretty good, right? Especially in California. My 401k was pretty big. My house, I could take a bunch of money out. They were just giving me money. Just got to sign the dotted line. So I figured, what could possibly happen, right? That was 2007. So started the business, came out with a uh, ready-to-drink mojito because I thought, you know, nobody, mojitos were popular then. I came with a mojito. Uh, I was driving down 93 South, and I saw the Bacardi ad. And then I saw Bacardi commercials. So I did about $600,000 worth of business in three months, and then about 30000 the rest of the next year of that brand. And then I had another fledgling wine brand that was doing okay. And then, um, and I did some sourcing through the Ciati team for my other wine brand also. Uh, and, um, and what happened was in, uh, in 2008, business crashed. It wasn't doing well. The economy crashed. Uh, also, my wife had our first daughter and I didn't have healthcare. I don't know if you guys have heard of mega health, but not good. Don't go there. Uh, and, and, um, so, so I really, you know, 90 plus sellers was really my, you know, Bottom of the ninth, two outs, two strikes. Red Sox, obviously, first place, so I just want to throw that in there, too. Uh, the, and and I, I had maybe enough to buy three or four containers of wine. And, and, and I knew I had to do something in order to kind of, unless I was going to be stocking shelves at, at a store in about three months. So, you know, really, you know, I, I saw there was an opportunity. There was an arbitrage. You know, back in, in, in 2008, there was, you know, two things. There was a financial collapse. So it was one of the first times, in, especially in the U.S., that wines over $15 actually went down in sales. You know, in 20 years, $15 and higher wines have been increasing double digits. 2008 was one of the first years they went down. So there was an excess inventory of wine. And it also coincided with global yields, you know, uh, huge yields all over the world. So, you know, as a, you know, Boston kid, you know, I can't drive up to San Francisco and go up to Napa and kick barrels and meet, meet some of these winemakers and buy wine. And a lot of times people won't even uh, uh, answer my phone calls. But it, it was a different environment back then where I was able to just, you know, call up wineries. And, and literally, that's what I did. I, and that's kind of how the 90 plus sellers name came about is what I did is, 
is I was like, how do you start? You know, how many wineries are, is there in just Spain? Probably like 5,000 wineries just in Spain. How many wineries are in California? Steve, how many wineries are in California? You know, probably 4,000, 5,000. So throw myself in a lifeline in the ocean of wine. Basically what I did is I did what consumers do. I went on E. Robert Parker, I went on Wine Spectator, went on the Wine Enthusiast, actually went on websites like uh, other retailer websites that feature 90 rated wine. I said, you know, not, not that ratings are the end all be all and then people drink a wine, they don't drink a number, but I figured just to throw myself a lifeline in wine, just to filter out all, that, uh, all those options in the market, I would just database the wines and use a third party and say, I'm only gonna contact wineries that had a pedigree of accolades. That, that wine had a pedigree of 90 rating, gold medal, something, just to have a, a starting point. And that's what I did. I sat in my, at that point, it was my, my baby room, my nursery, and I emailed up to 50, 60 wineries a day. Out of those 50, 60 wineries, maybe five would respond and about half of those would send samples. Got samples and, and um, tasted them with retailers because I was buying, I had to get retailer buying on this because if I didn't, I'd be stuck with wine. It would show up and it wouldn't sell. And uh, negotiated deals with these wineries and uh, didn't have a brand name. I was like, hey, well, what am I going to call this? I can't call this Mara Wines. Why do people want to buy wine from me? And uh, I was actually driving my wife to work. And, uh, and she, she was like, well, you're sourcing wines that, you know, your, your, your criteria is you're buying and you're, you're filtering out. You're only doing wines that have 90 rating. What's, just call it 90 sellers or 90 or something like that. And I was like, has to be trademarked. There's no way I could do that. Went home, checked, it wasn't, and I trademarked it. So, and that is how we launched 90 plus sellers. So, and that's still how we, we do a lot of our sourcing today. You know, things have changed though, obviously. We're not in the same financial, uh, you know, Steve just talked about, there's, you know, we're getting closer to balance now. So, you know, now at, to supply five, you know, 480,000 cases, we're larger, we have scale. We can go to some of these um, uh, uh, suppliers, sometimes the same suppliers that we dealt with back in 2008 and nine, and, and they put us into their forecasts. They, they work with us and they make the wine for us. Say, let's just say they uh, used to sell grapes. Well, now they just don't sell as many grapes and they make wine for us. Also, you know, there's, there's still, you know, certain markets that, you know, it's cyclical. There's certain markets, it's more about for us, yields. When market, when states have, when countries have strong yields, we can come in and, and take advantage and get great, great deals on wines. And also, you know, there is still mistakes made. There's still deals out there. You know, we just launched our Lot 150 signature wine and, it was a Spring Mountain cab, and you know, winery made a mistake, and we bought 3,000 cases and sold all of them in a month. An $80 cab, we sold for $34.99. So there is still markets, and there's still deals out there in the marketplace. So this is how we're doing. So you know, I'd say we're doing pretty good. Uh, it's pretty exciting. We've been a Market Watch Impact Hot Brand Award winner three years in a row, and that's where I show up and. Gallo's got their 10 or 15 awards. Constellation's got about eight, and I show up, and everyone's does nobody claps except the one retailer from Massachusetts sometimes. Uh, you know, we're, we're a uh, top 10 brand in New, in New England. So in actually New England, which can, uh, is Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, we do about 270,000 cases. Just in Vermont, we do 22,000 cases. We're right behind Barefoot in Vermont, which is crazy. Uh, it's like 700,000 people population. So it's a, it's a uh, number two 750 ml wine brand in New England. So uh, I think the market share on the IRI data for Kendall Jackson is 2.9%. We're 2.8%, but we're still growing. Uh, Kendall Jackson chart has you know, one or two SKUs. We have 35, of course. Um, 
obviously beverage dynamic hot brand award winner and you know pretty excited to still be on that list uh you know with a lot of uh large and and prestigious companies and we're still independent and you know based in boston which there's not that many uh you know companies like us based out there so since since we've launched we've actually you know we sell to almost 4,000 retailers we haven't launched a new market in two years so we like to try to introduce we have we have the trust of our retailers we like to introduce new products with that same theme of you know relentless value good good quality products nice packaging so we just launched Ironside Cabernet Ironside uh, and Ironside Pinot Noir about six years ago kind of paying homage to I don't know if anyone's been to the USS Constitution you know it's called Old Ironside it's the famous uh, uh, US Coast Guard and military boat in, in Charlestown, so that's kind of paying homage to that brand, and we have a, uh, and we actually make this wine. So we source this from, from grapes and from bulk, and we actually make this wine, and we sell it throughout uh, uh, the Northeast and, and, and Midwest. We also, about three years ago, real, you know, we kind of tasted through some of the sangrias in the market, and we're like, we think we can do better. So we launched a brand called Mija Sangria. Uh, it's, um, Mija means daughter in Spanish. I have two daughters. Uh, we have a white and a red sangria. This brand will do about 38,000 cases this year. So this is one of our only brands that we have that are national. So this is in every state except Nevada, actually. So if you have a distributor in Nevada, you know, DM me later. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a craft sangria. You get, it, it is delicious. You really got to try it. It's 100% uh, um, real fruit juice. It's got like the uh, pulp on the bottom. You shake it up. It's a really delicious sangria. Then, you know, Every brand, you know, when you talk about entrepreneurship, I always believe it has to start with a need. It has to have some kind of market need. And honestly, most of the market needs that I learn about are from my wife and my wife's friends. When, when, when something happens during the day and I go get curious and think about it. So, you know, I bought a fishing boat and was going out fishing and going out cruising with my wife. And, and she, what do they want to drink? They want to drink rosé on the boat all the time. This was about 2015. I, I thought, you know, I brought, bought the rosé and it would just break. It was a bottle. I have to pour it. And then I was just, that's, that's, and then also, you know, the, the, went to Cape Cod, had to carry down to the beach, you know, three bottles of rosé for the wives and then, you know, have to carry all the garbage back up. It was a pain in the butt. So I bought her a bunch of different uh, um, canned wines and nothing kind of fit back in 2015. There was not anything that really fit her taste profile, dry. It was all um, more sweet, spritzers, things like that. So I went to my board, I do have a board, uh, and presented an idea of doing a canned wine brand. And um, they okayed it. Uh, and we launched in 2016. We've had some struggles because it's a emerging category and we were the first out there but uh we've really we've taken this national now we've got it into Publix, heb we just got into safeway in california we haven't even launched california yet we just got into safeway uh this year we'll do uh we've already done as of last friday about 2,000 cases more than we did last year so it is this is the year of canned wine from what i've seen right now with the trends and the sell through and we've been doing it since 2016. so here's our growth uh We'll sell about 530,000 cases uh, through May 31st. You know, our goal actually this year, there's a lot of headwinds. There's, there's a different market than it was 2008 to 2012 uh, with all the consolidation in the marketplace. Um, the, uh, so we're, we'll do about 530,000 cases this year. Um, we budgeted probably 510, so we're about 23% up this year, all 100% organic growth, no new markets. Um, and that, that growth is holding right through July, so it's pretty exciting. But you can see kind of the trend and uh, where we started in 2008. 
this is kind of a fun slide, you know, that I, I like to talk about because, you know, it's all, you know, my presentation more about just wine is about entrepreneurship. And uh, I've always been an entrepreneur since I was a little kid and didn't really want to work for five fifty an hour. And I'll tell you, you know, in 2008, Ray told you, that's when I started the company. Did about 12,000 cases. That was, you know, mix of the, the, the Mojito brand and the, and the um, uh, a brand, another wine brand that I owned. And uh, had a, no employees, didn't pay myself, and uh, worked out of my, you know, baby room. And then the baby came, and I had to get a Regis, and uh, uh, one of the Regis offices. Did about 12,000 cases. 2009, launched uh, um, 90 plus sellers. And I knew I had something almost right away when I launched it. I'd go to stores that had my other wine brand that I had sold it to them a month earlier, and then I'd go to the store and, and see the 90 plus sellers, and be and, and I'd sold it to them a week ago, and the 90 plus sellers was already depleted, and would they need a re reorder? So I already knew I had something. So that's when my partner, Brett Vankoski, came on board, and he has picked every wine since lot seven. So he's been on board since then. He was the first employee, the first paid person for Latitude Beverage. One, because he also offered to work under minimum wage and just pay for his gas for the first uh, two to three months. But um, so from, from uh, uh, the, we launched probably like June or you know, mid-summer of 2009, and um, our first seven wines. And then, you know, kind of moved from there to uh, 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 kind of start out growing. I had about three people in the company in 2010 and uh, did about 42,000 cases. By then, we were probably in a New York, New Jersey, north, so the whole northeast. And, you know, uh, still, you know, one of our models is we're not the typical, you know, overhead of the wine company. You know, back in 2008 and 2009, even 2010, I was a salesperson. I was out selling. You know, in 2008 and 2009, I was the delivery guy. I would sell, sell on Monday, deliver on Tuesday, sell on Wednesday, deliver on Thursday, go and fight for checks on Friday. Uh, Fridays, I would take you know Dunkin' Donuts coffee to try to get those checks. The uh, uh, so on, 2010 started with a uh, uh, my first kind of office, but it was basically I don't know if you guys have heard of Harpoon Brewery. It's a, they're a part uh, they're an investor in our company and he's great comp great local brewery in Boston. And uh, they were blowing up their second floor to put in a, a bar upstairs. So it was just a completely blown out floor. And he kind of hit some stumbling blocks in the, in the uh, application and it was just empty. So we basically had a closet up there with no heat and some, one, one cord where we just plug everything into for two and a half years. They gave us free rent up there. Then we got kicked out of there within 30 days had to find a new spot because he had a, uh, um, uh, he got his permit last minute and we ended up above a liquor store in Brookline. But really, one of the things that helped us get, get to our next level was a feature in the Boston Globe. So in 2012, March 2012, the Boston Globe reached out to me and said, I wanna, we're doing a report on your wine. You can participate in it or you don't have to participate in it. We're going to do the report anyways. We're going to be buying your, your wines off the shelf and then we're going to be buying actually 90 rated wines from the shelf at round your price, probably higher. And... Uh, we're going to have five sommeliers taste the wines and give us their opinions. We decided to participate, so we were interviewed for it, and um, it went well. You know, we ended up, you know, when I was walking to the store to grab the paper, uh, I was nervous. You know, I mean, this could sink or, or really take our company, take off. And I, I was thinking, I'm like, do I really even want this? And, and uh, ended up front page of the Boston Globe money section, uh, three of the five wines they picked, they, they liked ours better. And one of the wines they picked, was actually this, our supplier was the exact same wine. And another one of our wines was our 25, uh, a parole they bought for $25 from us. 
and they bought a $75 Barolo, and they picked our set $25 Barolo as, as their favorite. And um, that really took off, because it got on CNN, CNBC, we started getting a lot more press. And that's when we, 2012 is when we started launching Chicago, uh, started getting into the mid-Atlantic, and that's when we were able to start launching new markets, because our business doubled that month, and it never looked back in 2012. And then, you know, really after 2012, we started launching maybe a market every two years. You know, one thing that I like to say is, is we grow as fast as the supply of good quality wine allows us to. And also, we, you know, you know as you grow, the, the fear is, you know, keeping and not diluting what got you there, that scrappy nature, the good service. And as you grow and become national, the fear really is, is diluting all that and you lose all that. And, and can you keep replicating it by launching big states like Texas, Florida? And we don't feel like we can, so we're not touching those markets yet. We feel like we, our, our quality will, will, will be diluted, and plus our service and our market will be diluted. Uh, so between 2013, we started really accelerating growth, up to 202,000 cases. And then really kind of things kind of changed from, for me too, uh, where now, you know, I've never had a corporate job. I was a sales rep for, you know, with, with the Phillips Distilling after college and then moved into, and I was always working for home. So now I'm in an office tower. I have to drive into a, a parking garage. This is the first corporate job I have. So it's kind of changed from me being a brand builder and out there selling to now, you know, it's, it's running a company. So, you know, we are definitely a sales oriented business. That's, that's our kind of one of our core competencies is sales and getting to the market. And so 90% of our employees are, are sales. Uh, and then, but really the last two years has been kind of transitioning to, you know, um, let our infrastructure of our business catch up to the size of the business we did. We really hit a, uh, you know, in 2014, 15, a wall where we were running our business on QuickBooks, you know, uh, I needed bank financing, and the bank kind of came in and looked at what I was doing, and they're like, you're going to fall apart. How the hell are you doing this? And, you know, we didn't know if we were making money or not making money until the end of the year we did our taxes. So, you know, there's a real inflection point for entrepreneurs like me where you become a brand and just out there selling to business. And to become a business is different. You know, you, I, you don't realize how much a CFO costs, how much a VP of marketing costs. And, and to, be, to, to get all that, and, and, and that's kind of what we did in the last two years is to become not just a brand, but a company. And so, you know, we have uh, Maria Gagliardi is our CFO, Terry Lazoff is our VP of marketing, and Brett's our director of wine, and everybody has ownership in the company. So what is a negotiant? You know, I think everyone here knows what negotiant in, no, no is, but, you know, it's, um, uh, it's, a, it's a merchant, you know, started in Burgundy. They're uh, really, what it comes down to is the turn is, is really it's somebody that doesn't have vineyard assets. You know, we're a virtual winery. Uh, until maybe six months ago, where I bought an actual forklift, my biggest asset, depreciable asset, was my Apple computer. Until that, now I had to pay buy a forklift, so now it's the forklift. But uh, uh, the you know, so if 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 a if the, the if the legal term or the term that we all agree on of a negotiant is someone that can buy finished wine, which make improvements to wine before boiling it, and taking grapes and unfermented juice and, and making wine from scratch, that includes a lot more people than just me in this room and in the, in the wine industry, and a lot more brands than just me. So it's, it's funny when I talk to retailers and they say, you're a negotiant, you're not a winery. Well, I go, well, almost 60, 70% of your wines on your shelf right now are negotiants also. So, you know, and, and then there's the term modern negotiant. And, you know, what is a modern negotiant? You know, for... You know, what I like to think of a modern negotiant is, you know, the traditional, traditional negotiants 
like Jadot and, and what they're doing is they're basically sourcing locally, right, in France and selling globally. What the modern negotiant, like myself and Cameron Hughes and some of the other guys are, is they're sourcing globally and they're selling locally. So they, you know, we have more um, kind of local knowledge and how to sell and build our brands locally and what the local market needs. You know, we probably, with our model, wouldn't be as success successful on the West Coast as we are on the East Coast because we know what Boston, New Yorkers, Chicago people like to drink. We drink more imports. We drink a little more Italian wine, a little more European wine. Uh, we drink a lot of French rosé. We drink a lot of Prosecco. Um, so, you know, who else is a modern negotiant? You know, you know, Miomi was just sold and it didn't even include any vineyard assets. So is that a negotiant? Probably, you know, is, um, so there's a lot more brands and it's getting a little fuzzier. Now, Jadot, they own, I think, three to 400 acres of the, some of the best land in Burgundy. So are they still a negotiant? They now have vineyard assets. So I think it's a, a really fuzzy term and it's used a lot. And it's, it's um, I, I think it encompasses a lot more brands and companies than, than, than you think. What's the pros and cons of being a negotiant model? Well, pros, low barrier of entry and capital costs. Uh, my dad didn't sell a you know, high-tech company and leave, leave a fortune to me, so I really had no other options. I wasn't going to go out and buy a vineyard. And I think a lot of other entrepreneurs starting out have to start as negotiants unless you, you know, just IPO a company and can afford to buy a vineyard. Um, ultimate flexibility in sourcing and risk. So we can source from everywhere, you know, just like Steve, Steve was on his presentation earlier. When certain markets have a bad harvest, you can possibly change to a new country and source the same, source the wine and fill that consumer need from another country. Um, reactive market trends and fast to market. You know, we're pretty, we're pretty good at this. This is kind of one of our core competencies. If we see something, we see a market need, we can turn around and get something in the market in 90 days. Uh, easier and faster scalability. You know, we're not, we don't own the land. You know, we're, we don't have to harvest and wait for the new vineyard. We can, you know, we can go out and we can source from everyone if we need to buy more or scale higher a negotiant can scale. Um, cons, higher cost, lower margin. You know, you're not producing the product anymore, you're a trader, right? If you're a trader, there's more people in your supply chain, you're making just a little bit less margin than, a, than, a, than a, someone that's farming, producing, and selling. Uh, you don't have complete control of your wine or vineyard management or production. Um, usually, we're not gonna tell the vineyard how to, you know, what kind of yields and what kind of control uh, they should they should have in the vineyard, which a lot of reasons why you know growers want to work with negotiants sometimes is because they're not told how to manage their vineyards. They can do it. They can do what they want and provide the wine to us and make the wine for us. Um, no vineyard tours, so they come to our Boston office. Unfortunately, there's no tours, uh, so uh, that that's 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 one one weakness that we have. Um, and you don't own the, you know. And there's a big negative also because you know you don't own the land. So there's, you know, bad, bad le yield years, like 2011 was a tough year for us in California. Um, you could be completely wiped out and not get anything if, the, if, it's, if it's a really bad harvest. So there really is a risk there to get priced completely out of categories. Keys to building a successful, successful negotiant model. First of all, you gotta, any business though, this could be any business, not just us. You gotta, you know, find a, what's it, six minutes, okay. You gotta identify a hole in opportunity. I think any business you launch, you have to have that opportunity. Create a hook, I'm big on this. So if you're a negotiant, you know, you have to have a reason for people to buy from you. 
you know, are you a sommelier? Are you, um, uh, what, you know, are, are, you know, we have our hook of buying wines from highly acclaimed wineries. What is your hook? Why do people, why are people going to buy from you? What are you curating to, 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 that people are going to buy from you? Identify your core competencies. Are you a wine guy? Are you a sales guy? Are you good at logistics? What, what is your core competencies? And then put your money into your core competencies. Understand your sourcing strategy. You know, where are you going to be, um, what country are you buying from? Are you going to concentrate on Europe? Are you, going to, you know, we're global. We're, we buy from all over the world. But I don't know if that's a great strategy if you're going to be a national company. You should probably be a little more specific. You know, we're in 13 states, so we can have 30 SKUs. But if we're a national company, it'd be very hard to do 30 SKUs. Um, establish your go-to-market strategy. Now, uh, this is, this is, this, I could have done 10 slides on this. You know, your go-to-market strategy, are you direct-to-consumer? Are you retail? You almost have to choose. You can't do both properly both right. You know, we, we do both, but we don't do direct to consumer that well because we can't price our stuff underneath a retail, Re, you know, for retail, probably 10% of our uh, email database are retailers. And when we, when we have a sale, I see those emails forwarded to me and, and, and I email them right to my uh, direct consumer person saying, you know, they're about 1% of our business right, right now, direct consumer. Um, know your customer. You know, know who your customer is and, and speak to that customer and have all your marketing materials towards that customer. You know, our customer is value-driven. They like to drink great wine because we sell a lot of Barola, we sell a lot of Russian Rapino, Napa Cab, and we sell a lot of $10 wine also, but they don't want to pay for it. So they want to drink the good stuff, but they don't want to pay for it. And that's our customer. But it's also kind of changing a little bit where, you know, our customer is also someone that just wants something easy. They don't, they walk into a store, they see 3,000 wine labels, they're confused. Those customers in New England know they've had five or six of our lots. They haven't tried maybe our rosé, but they've tried other stuff. It's safe, it's easy. There's a warranty there that they can trust that we've done the work, we've pre-selected the wine, that they can trust it and they can buy it. Uh, stay nimble and get ahead of trends. You know, I think, you know, we got into rosé early. We got into rosé about seven years ago. Uh, we started doing rosé cruises, we started doing events. And now we're one of the leading rosés in, in New England. Um, Prosecco, we got into Prosecco early. So you gotta stay into these trends and find out what the next hot thing is and get into it early. And, and, and then also stay nimble though. Don't, don't you know, commit to too much. That, you know, don't get, fall in love with the wine where you see something that's great and you think, and, 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 and buy too much of it. So you should always have some avail, avail, availability to buy something on spot. So if you're gonna contract something, buy 75% what you need, have some availability to buy something if something else comes up. You know, build an effective sourcing strategy. You know, uh, exactly embrace your area of focus. So if you're a French, if you're going to source French, embrace it. Have your sourcing strategy down. Have your area of focus down and, and focus on it. Develop relations of trust. This one's easy. Uh, CID will tell you. Pay your bills. You got to pay your bills. <laughs> California, Europe, they're small, small, small markets. So if you don't pay your bills, it's going to get around quick and you're not, you're going to be shut right out. So don't commit to too much that you can't pay your bills and develop a good relationship and develop, um, you know, be honest and transparent with your suppliers. If you don't think you're going to hit goals, make sure you let them know early that you're not going to be able to hit the goals and buy what's contracted or what's, what's been negotiated so they can find other ways to uh, uh, sell that wine and work with you for the next vintage. Um, uh, balance commitment with agility, and I've already kind of talked about that. Don't commit to too much. Always have some flexibility in your market. Leverage local brokers and winemakers. You know, that's what I first did. You know, I, uh, when I first contacted Ciotti, they told me, who are you from Boston? We don't know who you are. Never really got back to me until I got Dennis Schrapp, who's a fellow Canadian, 
in Montreal Canadiens fan, which I wasn't a fan of, and uh, that's, that's how they, they actually answered my phone calls and first got me in the fold. But they had local knowledge in California that I didn't have. Introduced them, met winemakers, met people, learned the market. Our first seven wines were all imports. I didn't have a California wine until uh, middle, late 2010, uh, a, a, a Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir, and Ciotti really helped me with that process of how to bottle it, how to put it in, and now we have a full infrastructure in California and do probably uh, 180,000, uh, no, but 120,000 cases of domestic wine. Oh, where to now? How do I go back? Well, uh, where do we go from here? So, uh, 90 plus sellers expanding new markets. We are considering a couple new markets. You know, with consolidation and with the, in, on both tiers, the distribution tier and the um, uh, retail, grocery, it's getting harder and harder to find new markets. Because what, what we do is we don't just go into new markets just to get an extra bump that month. We have to have a two-year plan for domination. If we want to go into a market, I need to have a plan to get to become a top 20 wine brand within two years in that state. If I can't get there and I don't think there's a plausible way to get to it, we don't launch the market. And every state that we've done, the last state we launched was uh, Colorado two years ago, and we had 25,000 cases already in Colorado. So we have to have, you know, we focus on that market for at least two years, and we don't launch a new market until the current markets we're in are growing, hitting goals, and on to the progress of being becoming a top 20 brand in that market. Um, Lila Mija, you know, we've taken that national now. Um, it's a little bit beyond our, our, our core competency probably because we're selling in Florida, California, Texas, where we don't sell anything else. But we're trying to grow market share and, and, and grow those brands. Uh, direct consumer, you know, we are starting to try to focus a little bit more on that. It's great margin. And it is, you know, growing at 16% a year while retail is growing at, you know, low, low, low single digits. Uh, we just launched a, uh, you know, I, when I go to meetings, I finish my presentation, and they're like, well, when are you going to do a private for me? That's been happening for about five years, these meetings. Uh, so we're going to launch our, our, uh, um, our private label division with Mike Monk over here. We have a table called NE42 um, uh, this year. And then we have new brands. Uh, we have a new brand that we launched this year, and I took this from the, a little bit from the um, beer companies, you know, back about... Uh, you know, three, four years ago, local beer was beer made in Massachusetts or a beer made just in California was a local beer. But that's all changed now with craft beer. Now it's like customer, you know, the beer guys want to drink beer that's made within their 10 block radius. That's local now, right? So to take a page from that, we decided this year to launch a brand called Places Wine. Now what Places Wine is to take advantage of a hot trend, which is Provence Rosé and uh, French Rosé in general. And we launched uh, wines that kind of are, celebrate famous regions around the Northeast. Okay, so this is probably the top selling one. We, it's called Ack, I don't know, does anyone here know what Ack means? Nantucket, yes. So if you go to Nantucket, you're gonna see Ack everywhere. It's, it's on shirts, it's, uh, it's the airport, airport code. So we have Ack Provence Rosé and MVY Rosé. If you didn't know, Nantucket and Marsh Vineyard are a little competitive against each other. And we give a dollar bottle to the Boss Boys and Girls Club for each Nantucket and Marsh Vineyard and it's doing really, really well. We launched a, a, a Celebrate Boston Provence Rosé that gives back to the Boston lo, uh, public schools. We're very involved in the community in Boston. We give away probably $250,000 worth of wine a year to local charities in New England. Um, and the, the Boston Rosé is doing very well. We did a Montauk Rosé. Uh, we did a 5280 for Denver, um, and, um, and we did a Live Free for New Hampshire. So we have these kind of celebrate wines for different, different regions within New England, and all of them give back a dollar a bottle to a local charity, and it's doing really well.
So, and then uh, I think that's it. So uh, I think I have one minute and 46 questions, 46 seconds for questions, so. Well, well, they're all try. You know, I think with us because we're local, we're able to talk to a lot of consumers. You know, we have um, 70, 85 employees. Seventy-five of them are sales reps and out there in the market. So I think a lot of it for us is is um, you know, and, and first of all, we're in a lot of independent states. We're not in a lot of grocery states. So we're talking to retailers all the time. We've been uh, communicating the story, and so we make sure we communicate the story properly to retailers. They can tell their customers about it, and we do a lot of demos. We do a lot of, you know, just kind of talking to our customers. And you know, when I first launched the company, especially, I was doing demos every single weekend. But now, still, we probably do, you know, 50 to 100 tastings every weekend in our partner retail stores. So I, I think for us, we're trying to, you know, we're in independent markets, which is a lot easier to to, to communicate your story because you can. They still have, you know, um, uh, wine store employees that can tell our story and in introduce our brand to people. But we don't have QR codes on our, on our labels. We don't have any of that stuff yet. Uh, we haven't done the VR, virtual reality yet. Uh, we had QR codes, I think, before they got popular, and, and it really, nobody really used them at all. So. Yes, yes, yes. So we have, uh, um, we're legal, we self-distribute. And where illegal, where, where there's tight house states, we use distributors. So, uh, especially Maine, Vermont, it's bottle states. You have to. I'd say about 65% um, uh, of our business goes through our own channels. We and then the rest go through, go through distributors. Right. Well, you know, I think, you know, for us, quality is number one. I think that we try to work with people mid-size and smaller that can have some kind of differentiation, that can kind of produce something, you know, customized, a little different for just us, that little quality. But then also for us nowadays, it's also, you know, we have um, a pipeline of business now where we do 70,000 cases of Sauvignon Blanc now. So now a big part of it also is just to have, um, you know, back in the day in 2008-9, we could buy something from someone and just never have to buy it again. We need to know now that we're buying from stable suppliers that can supply it year after year. Otherwise, you know, we'll have customers looking for So it's, it's, it, you know, it's a blend of both. We need to make sure that we're, we're buying from people that can differentiate ourselves and make the wine just, just one notch better, a little more unique for our customers, but then also someone that can produce it year after year for us and supply us long term. We have time for one more question. So I'm and then, but Kevin, you'll be around today if we have yes, anyone yes, has any I'll additional. Yes, yes, I'll be around today. Okay, yep, great. Yep. <laughs> Hello, I'm from New Zealand. I'm just interested in how you pay your sales staff. Are they commission-based or KPI, or how do you really? No, because that's a, that's a good question. Because um, uh, you know we're brand builders. We don't have commission sales reps. So you know the problem with commission sales reps is they feel like they work for themselves. They don't work for you. You know they feel like, well, I'm I'm commissioned. If I go drive an hour and a half to that store and sell one case. I'm not making any money, so I'm not going to do it. But maybe it's the right thing for our brand because it's or because of our customers and our trade. You know, one of the big reasons why we're successful is, is 
retailer partnerships. You know, one, we try to make sure our brand is profitable to the retailer. If we're not profitable retailer, they're not going to carry us or they're not going to promote it. Uh, but also servicing the retailer and servicing our customers. So all my sales reps are, are salary plus uh, quarterly bonuses. So, but their salary is enough for them to live so that, so that they'll do the right things for the brand and the company, not just go run after the, you know, uh, a, um, a, a big drop on cases to make a commission check. All right, thank you guys.